Well, brothers and sisters, it's very good to be back with you, bring you greetings again from RTS and from uh, Reformation OPC down the road. It is uh, a blessing to be with you. It's also wonderful to hear of, of the a call that you've made to Matt Marino. I'm vaguely familiar with his preaching and his ministry, and it seems you'll, you'll be very blessed if that is indeed uh, what the Lord has for you. This morning we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and a special focus on uh, the first portion uh, of this passage, but we're going to read the whole thing. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would now bless the preaching of your word, open hearts, give clarity of mind, speak to us through your inspired and inscripturated words, that we would know you, love you, trust you, find comfort in you better. In your son's name, amen. Soli Deo Gloria is the title of this sermon, and it's the theme of this sermon. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone, be the glory. We hear this phrase a lot, don't we? Especially in Reformed circles. It's Latin, and yet it hasn't dropped out of our vernacular. I wonder, though, how often we stop to think about what this phrase or this idea, this commitment of giving all the glory to God actually means for our lives. Does it have any practical implications? I wonder how often, more to the point, we intentionally strive to give God glory in everything that we do. After all, to confess this certain brand of doctrine and to live a certain way of life are two very different things, and they don't necessarily follow from one another. The ancient city of Ephesus was the home, perhaps you remember from grade school, to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? The great temple of Artemis. It was there that King Croesus began construction of uh, this great temple to the Greek goddess, And I say he began it because construction of this huge orifice took over a century to complete. Artemis had a devoted cult following throughout the Mediterranean world and many nations and regions. Her followers viewed her as their spiritual mother. And this jaw-dropping temple at Ephesus was their Mecca. But then along came a man by the name of Herostratus. Now, if Herostratus were alive today, doctors would probably diagnose him with a severe clinical case of narcissism. You see, Herostratus was consumed with the idea of making sure that his name was remembered. He wanted to make a name for himself. And so what did he do? Well, in the year 356 BC, Herostratus burned down 
the temple of Artemis just to make a name for himself. And it worked. Here we are, 2,500 years later, talking about this crazy nobody, Herostratus. He sought glory and he got it. Of course, he didn't live to see that come to pass. He was promptly executed, but the plan worked. Now, I think there's something of Herostratus in each one of us, even if it doesn't manifest itself in such a bizarre way. We all seek glory, don't we? We all desire to make a name for ourselves. Even the meekest among us is susceptible to this desire for credit, for recognition, for the praise of others. Now, certainly there's a healthy and a Christian way in which we can want that kind of affirmation, right? We want others to affirm that we're doing the right things in a God-glorifying way. But I'm afraid we see that kind of affirmation or praise or glory hunting far too rarely. No, almost always, our glory seeking is as base as that of the world. Even as Christians, we confess with our lips that we want all the glory to go to God. But in our hearts and with our lives, we pursue self-glorification, just like the world does. So today I want to give you three motivations, three reasons to actually give all the glory to God on a daily basis. You see, we give God all the glory not only because we don't deserve it, which is true, but also because he positively does. Paul spent much of the first half of Ephesians describing this state of sin into which we're born and from which we are brought out by the work of Jesus Christ. He describes this spiritual death in which we once participated. And while as Christians we're now alive in Christ, we're far from deserving of glory, aren't we? Think back on the last week of our lives even. Perhaps we've been short-tempered or arrogant, unloving, lusted, blasphemed, coveted. The truth is that we've done any number of things to disqualify ourselves from receiving glory. But the same cannot be said of the holy and triune God. You see, the three reasons Paul gives us in this passage to actually give God glory are the three persons of the Trinity themselves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we know them through the things that they do, through their works. We give God all the glory, in other words, because of what he does as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so our first point today is this. We glorify God alone because of the creating and sustaining work of the Father. Because of the creating and sustaining work of the Father. In our passage, Paul offers up this prayer for the church. And while we'll consider the content of that prayer, what he actually prays for in a moment, It's important that first we note to whom he's praying. Paul writes in verses 14 and 15 that he offers up this prayer. He's on his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth has been named. Now, when you think of the many things that God the Father does, does the work of naming families come to mind first? I know it doesn't for me. It seems like a strange place for Paul to start. But Paul chooses to describe God the Father in this way for a very good reason. You see, when Paul wrote this epistle to the Ephesians, it was actually a circular letter. It's one of the very few, if possibly the only Pauline letter, which doesn't say to such and such a church in such and such a city. It's meant to circulate, 
right? And so he knows that he's going to have this diverse audience. Specifically, he knows that his letter is going to be read in churches that are mainly comprised of Gentiles, as well as in churches full of converted Jews. And so he uses this loaded terminology of God the Father, who's named every family in heaven and on earth. Why does he do that? Well, let's think about it. If you're a first century Jew and somebody says, who is your father? And they know who your dad is, right? But they say, who is your father? Your father is Abraham, right? That's where your lineage begins. The only family on earth on whom God has placed a special name said, these are my people, Israel. It's this family of Abraham. To claim that every family on heaven and on earth has been given a name by God then has some serious implications if you're a first century Jewish reader. When our daughter was born just about a year ago, uh, there was no uh, discussion in the delivery room about what her name would be, right? When I said her name is going to be Margaret Beth, the nurses didn't hit us back with some other ideas. Why? It's not their prerogative. They don't get to do that. We're her parents. We brought her into this world, we intend to raise her, and therefore the act of placing a name on her is our right. Her naming is a mark of the fact that we have created and will sustain her in a lesser sense. In a similar sense, though the children of Israel had been named by God as his own. In Old Testament times, this was unique to them among all the nations of the earth, but now Paul says, Every family in heaven and on earth has been given a name by God. In so many words, Paul is saying that we have entered a new era, a new eschatological, a new end times era, one which had been looked forward to in the Old Testament. He's telling his Jewish readers that the covenant community is no longer identified by a certain ethnic group. The family of God is growing. No Jew can claim superiority in the kingdom on the basis of his lineage. It's not how it works anymore. We're all equally members of God's family, and as our creator and sustainer, he has the right to place his name upon us. But Paul also has Gentile readers, doesn't he? And he knows all about their religion as well. He knows that to someone like, say, a worshiper of Artemis, the spiritual family is defined by its mother, Artemis was even depicted often in statues as, um, shall we say, exaggerated maternal features, indicating to her worshipers she could nurse and sustain dozens of children at once. So Paul makes an even greater claim. The Christian God is a father to everyone. He's the creator and sustainer of every being in heaven and on earth. His family isn't limited to how many people he can physically take care of. Paul's point to his Gentile readers, like the Ephesians, then is clear. Rather than worshiping the little statue of Artemis, worship the true God who's over all creation. Now, if I had to guess, I would guess that you don't have a little statue of Artemis sitting on your kitchen table. You may not even have a family tree reaching back to Abraham so that you can trust in your genealogical associations. But the temptation that you and I face, friends, is... Uh, very much the same as Paul's original readers would have faced. It's a temptation to direct glory away from God into something unworthy, whether it's ourselves or some other creation. 
Paul is therefore concerned to impress upon his readers the fact that God the Father is the only one worth glorifying. He's the only one worth belonging to. Belonging to, excuse me. He's the only one worth praying to. Moreover, he's the only one who deserves to receive our prayers and to place a name upon us, for he alone is our creator and our sustainer. That's what a father does, right? That's what makes you a father. If you create and you sustain, you take one of those things out, and there's always a caveat, right? God alone brought us into the world, and he alone is bringing a people out of it to worship him as we journey toward heaven. So friends, when you direct glory away from God and, and toward yourself or toward other created things, understand that what you're doing is robbing the Father, robbing the Father of glory that he is due, and that is a dangerous game to play. Because unlike Artemis, God the Father is not a deity who will stand by and watch his temple be burned down so that somebody else can receive glory. It's a dangerous game to play. He will get the glory in the end. Scripture assures us of that, whether we give it to him willingly or otherwise. So hear this first motivation this morning to give all the glory to God. The Father has created you, and he sustains you. Every breath that you take is a gift from him. So to use that breath to give glory to anyone other than him is to throw the gift back in his face. Give glory to God because he alone deserves it and he alone will get it in the end. But this isn't the only motivation that Paul offers us. Now that we understand to whom Paul is praying, we can look at what it is that he actually prays for. And in short, Paul's prayer is that we would be strengthened, that we would be strengthened. Now, typically we speak of the person of the Trinity as Father, Son, Holy Spirit in that order, and that's right and fitting, but today we're going to go out of order, and we're going to talk next about the work of the Spirit, uh, because it's the Spirit specifically who comes next in this passage and who uh, we see doing this work of strengthening the believer. So our second point is this, we glorify God uh, alone because of the indwelling work of the Spirit, the indwelling work of the Spirit. Let's look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Paul says that his prayer is that God might grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner person. Before going any further, it might be helpful to take a moment to think about what's actually going on here. The Apostle Paul, who saw Jesus with his own eyes and heard his voice on the road to Emmaus, that Apostle Paul is offering a prayer for your soul, your inner person, as Paul calls it. You see, Paul knows that we fail to give God alone glory in a large part because our souls are weak and in desperate need of strengthening. We need the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit because our spirits are by nature unholy. We need the third person of the Trinity to fill us, as he puts it, because left to ourselves, we would be filled with evil desires, wicked impulses, sinful thoughts. This is why it's so vitally important that we avoid many of the many, uh, all of the many errors which theologians and pastors have made and passed regarding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. 
one such error is the belief that the Holy Spirit is some sort of impersonal force who comes upon us in a, a mo- moment of a particularly heightened religious experience, some sort of otherworldly emotional uh, onsetting which overcomes us from time to time, makes us love Jesus more in that moment. Well, that may sound cool, but it's not true of the Holy Spirit as we see him described in Scripture. The Spirit of whom the Bible speaks is very much a personal being with attributes and roles and jobs just like the Father and the Son have. The main job of the Holy Spirit, in fact, is not showing up from time to time, but this work of indwelling. What do I mean by that? Well, an illustration. There was a period of time when I was in college before I was married where I was unusually transient. I moved around a lot. In between uh, moving out of one apartment down here, moving back to my home in New Jersey, uh, off to an internship, back home for a time, down here again, I-, I had five different mailing addresses in five months. It was crazy. Learned a lot, including the difference between living in a place and staying in a place. When you live in a place, the dynamic is completely different from when you're just staying there, right? When you stay in a place, there's no incentive to learn the local roads. You don't bother fixing things up around the house or the apartment, right? There's no time and there's no reason to do those things. But when you take up residence in a place, the dynamic changes completely. When you commit to dwelling in a place, you commit to getting to know it, to working on it, improving it, making it your own. So when I say that the Holy Spirit indwells us rather than just influencing us from time to time and then dwindling off again, what I mean is that the Spirit's work is one of commitment to renew us from the inside out over the long term. It's a work of gradual and patient care for the Christian where the Spirit takes what was dead in its sins and crafts it into something alive, something completely different, which looks a whole lot more like Christ. The Spirit takes something weak and he makes it strong. Now, you more observant listeners, you might have a good question at this point. I've been talking about the Spirit as the one who dwells in us, but in verse 17, Paul says, in fact, that it's Christ who dwells in us. Have I gotten my Trinitarian theology mixed up? Well, I'm not infallible, that's for sure. But there is a good explanation for why we can talk about the Spirit strengthening us uh, by his indwelling, even when Paul specifically mentions Christ as indwelling us. See, certainly it would be wrong to confuse two members of the Trinity who are distinct. But it's actually vital to our understanding of how the Trinity works and how the persons of the Godhead relate to each other that we affirm that when Christ dwells in us, so does the Spirit. If you think back through Jesus' terminology in the Gospels especially, when he talks about who is going to come after him, who does he refer to it as? He speaks of sending his own Spirit. He says, I will send my Spirit. Right? They are one in triune unity. John Calvin says it's a mistake to imagine that the Spirit can be obtained without obtaining Christ, and it's equally foolish and absurd to think, to dream, he says, that we can receive Christ without the Spirit, for the Spirit will be found nowhere but in Christ. All this is to say, then, that if we want to be strengthened by the Spirit, as Paul prays that we would be, we have to receive the Son, 
And likewise, if we want the benefits of fellowship with Jesus, we must receive and experience the powerful indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this may seem like a a no-brainer. It's rich doctrine, yes, but it makes sense. And yet I would suggest to you that it has supreme importance for our lives. You see, too often, I'm afraid, we live our lives as though we can associate ourselves with Jesus without ever exhibiting the pervasive, lasting, soul-transforming work of his Spirit. We claim that we belong to Christ, in other words, but our hearts are very much captive to our own sinful desires. We say that we want all the glory to be given to God, but the deepest longing of our souls is to be gratified and glorified ourselves. It's an interesting phenomenon I've noticed um, frankly, a disappointing one, that those people who seem to act especially spiritual over the long term, more often they turn out to have been acting than to have been spiritual. Such people, and you know yourselves, such people who claim to worship the triune God, but who in reality worship themselves, they're in dire need of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you find yourself claiming to live for Christ then, but actually living for yourself, I would encourage you to pray with Paul. Pray right along with Paul that from the rich abundance of his bounteous grace, God would give you his spirit with power. Friends, we cannot make do with just a brief acquaintance with the spirit of God. He must take up permanent residence in our souls. We must receive him as the agent of sanctification in our lives. Oh, dear friends, do that, and you'll find abundant reason to give God glory. (laughs) Often, I think, uh, we think that we need to uh, look outside of ourselves to find reasons to glorify God, right? We, We need to hear the things that he's doing in other people's lives. We need to take that hike to the mountaintop and witness the grandeur of his creation. And while those are good reasons to give God glory... Really, we need to look no further than our own hearts if we are truly Christians. We need to look no further than to what he's doing in us as we mature into fruitful followers of Christ. Whatever love or joy or peace or kindness or gentleness or patience or self-control we exhibit in a day, no matter how pitifully uh, inadequate it may seem to us, It's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit for which he deserves unending praise. We can't generate those things, those virtues, on our own. So receive the Spirit, be transformed by the Spirit, then give all the glory to God for the good things he does in and through you by the Spirit. As if that isn't enough reason for us to give glory to God, then we come now to a final motivation. Number three, we glorify God alone. Why? Because of the loving work of the Son. The loving work of the Son. Now, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, does a great number of things which qualify him to receive our praise, doesn't he? It's he who covenanted with the Father before time to save a people for himself, laid aside his glory, took on humanity, kept the law perfectly, died for our sins, 
now reigns as king over all creation. But we'll focus today just on what Paul seems to want to highlight in this prayer. A simple fact that Jesus loves you. He loves you. Sometimes I think preachers feel the need to convince people that Jesus is worth following. They feel the need to push to one side the Jesus who, say, overthrew the tables of the tax collectors in the temple or who spoke words of condemnation upon so many people. So they overcompensate, perhaps, and they speak of Jesus and his love in these mushy, cuddly, high school romance sort of terms. That's not what Paul does here, though. Paul speaks about the love of Christ in terms of overbearing, life-altering, soul-changing magnitude. The love of Christ for Paul is the very foundation of our Christian lives. We are rooted and grounded in it, he says in verse 17. It's the spring from which our spiritual vitality, our spiritual life flows. But it's also an ocean so vast that we need the strengthening work of the Spirit. Why? Just to see across it, that we would comprehend its width and breadth and depth and height. This great love of which, with which Christ loves us is a love in which the whole ecosystem of the church flourishes. And so he prays that we would comprehend it, not just as isolated Christians, but together with all the saints. That's what makes the church work and function, isn't it? It's that we all know and understand and fully appreciate the love of Christ. And therefore, we can overlook the failures to love that we all commit against one another. I think of Ezekiel 47. Do you remember Ezekiel 47? It's that vision that Ezekiel has, the prophet of uh, the temple. It's out in the desert. And he's being guided around it by this angel. And as they come to the east gate, he notices that the the temple seems to have a little bit of a plumbing problem. Right There's water trickling out from under the east door of the temple. Now when you hear east, especially in the Old Testament... You should think thumbs down almost always. The east is a bad thing, figuratively speaking. It's the east from which the scorching wind blows that kills the crops. It's the east where Abraham left. It's the east where Babylon and exile are. The east is not a great place. And this water trickles out from under the east gate into this eastern desert. And it forms a little stream. And the stream is a physically impossible stream, right? Most streams, what do they do? They split up into tributaries, and each tributary is smaller than the last, right? It's how physics works, but not this river. This river grows in magnitude as it spreads out and it splits until walking across it, Ezekiel finds that he's up to his chin and he can't feel the bottom. And everywhere that this water goes, what happens? The grass and the flowers spring up in the middle of this scorching eastern desert. What is he seeing? What does it mean? Well, who is it that flows out from the throne room of God himself into the east, into the barren desert, bringing with him life wherever he goes, multiplying in a way that is foolishness to the world? It's Jesus Christ, who by his love brings life to this world. This is the love like no other love that you or I have ever felt for another person. And it's a love which demands that we do more than simply understand it cognitively. 
A number of years ago, a close friend of my family, Grandpa John, as we knew him, was dying of pancreatic cancer up there at his home in New Jersey. On one of my visits, uh, one of his visits, my father uh, was sad to find that Grandpa John was not in a good state. He was uh, hallucinating. He was uh, disoriented. As they sat there in his living room where Grandpa John had lived for decades, looked around himself at the ceiling beams, at the piano where his daughter had played, the little living room trinkets, and he just shook his head. And he said, I can't believe Elsie, his wife, I can't believe Elsie did all this. I just can't believe it. My dad said, what, what did Elsie do? And he said, I cannot believe that she replicated every detail of our home here in New Jersey down here in Florida. And my dad said, well, you're not in Florida. You're in your home in northwest New Jersey. And he took him to the window, showed him the property, the acres he had mowed for decades, showed him his vehicles in the driveway, tried to convince him, look, you're at home. You're in New Jersey. You're not suddenly in Florida. Until finally, Grandpa John said, Paul, please, I, I get it. I get it. I know. I'm in New Jersey. But I think I'm in Florida. <laughs> you see, there's a disconnect between what we cognitively know and what we know isn't there. We may understand that Jesus loves us with an incomprehensible love which has no comparison in this world. Perhaps we've been catechized from an early age. We've been to Sunday school went to Bible college, went to seminary. We know, but we feel lonely, right? We suffer injustices, mistreatment. The church fails us. Life just doesn't work the way that we thought it would. And it becomes very difficult all of a sudden to say that we know the love of Christ. In this prayer for your soul, Paul prays that you would know the love of Christ, even though that love surpasses knowledge, he says. He prays that you would be familiar with what is otherworldly. But how? That's impossible. Well, he prays that this would happen by faith. It's by faith, verse 19, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. It's by faith that we come to know the love of Christ and to be filled with that very love ourselves. So if you want to find one great reason to glorify God day in and day out, make this your reason, friends, that Christ in his infinite love for you has regarded your helpless estate, has shed his own blood for your soul. After 22 years of repeated failure, the Scottish national soccer team finally qualified for a major international tournament just last year. If you know anything about Scottish culture, you know that the Scots are fiercely patriotic, and to be excluded from European competitions for 22 years was almost more than they could bear. It was just awful. After a grueling match, though, against a much more talented, much more experienced team, the Scottish goalkeeper made this great save. They won the match, and all the tension of 22 years of failure just broke in a moment, and the team rushed into a dog pile of tears and jubilation, the Scottish sports broadcasters, uh, they forgot that they were supposed to be impartial, and they screamed into the microphones until their voices cracked. They had to delay the post-game interviews because the reporters were weeping. The overwhelming emotion of the moment totally overcame 
their composed sense of British decency. Paul is so overwhelmed by the love of Christ that he breaks into what commentators call peroration. It's a technical word. Peroration is just that type of overflow of emotion that makes you want to shout from the mountaintops. And so he writes in closing, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul's desire is to see God glorified because of everything that he's done for us. This isn't the hopeful prayer. I think you can pick up on this in the language. This isn't the hopeful prayer of somebody who is throwing petitions against the wall to see what sticks. His confidence in his God is so unshakable. Why? Well, it's because he's seen God do these things all over the known world as he's traveled and ministered. He knows the power with which God works in his saints. He knows the ways in which the Spirit strengthens those whom the Father sustains and the Son loves. And he wants God to get all the glory for it. Soli Deo Gloria, then why? Well, because God alone is worthy. Because his works are wondrous to behold and his love for us surpasses understanding. So in faith, dear friends, let's live as befits members of the Father's family. By the power of the Spirit who's in us, delighting all the while, and we can do that, delight in the love of Christ for us. And we'll find it easy, natural even, to give all the glory to God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your name would be praised, that it would be uplifted and proclaimed in every tribe and nation, in every tongue known to man, that you who are over all heaven and all earth, would be known for the gracious and just and good ruler whom you are. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.